everybody. Good to see all of you here. And those of you who are online, we're glad that you're here too. I don't often do this, but today's a kind of a big day for our online community because uh, my cousin Tom watches from Indiana and today is his birthday. This is his 60th trip around the sun and I guess around the sun again. Anyway, he's been around for 60 years. Anyway, happy birthday, Tom. Um, I don't get often a chance to do that for my family, so I'm going to do that now. I am thrilled that everyone is able to make it after the storm, that you didn't have to have an ark to get here. Oh my gosh. I was talking to Lisa about that last night, and it uh, struck me that we've not had a whole lot of thunder and lightning storms this year. Have you noticed that? We have plenty of rain. But as far as the whole, um, you know, God bowling thing, not so much. <laughs> now all of a sudden, like, like it all made up for it last night. So it was, uh, was pretty exciting there for a little while. So uh, anyway, if this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. So glad that we can hang out together and hang out with the presence of God. And since we are gathered in his name, we know by his word that he is here too. So... Be in your best behavior. No, just kidding. He wants to be here with you. He really does. Um, <clears throat> most people have heard of the story of David and Goliath. Um, if not the story, you've heard the term. Um, it usually refers to an underdog type of, of story. Uh, Goliath versus the boy, right? Um, you've probably... Um, grew up with this either, you know, if you were in the church, then you, you're familiar with this on flannel graph, of course. Uh, if you're a little bit older or a little bit younger than that, then uh, you probably remember Veggie Tales. And uh, if not, well, <laughs> today you're going to get introduced to it. So um, believe it or not, this is actually referenced quite a bit in American business. In fact, uh, I heard a story, I wish I could remember where I heard this. Um, but there was a speaker or a consultant who um, would often talk to people after his, uh, his speaking engagements who never knew that David and Goliath was actually a biblical story. They just thought it was a business story, which I thought was fascinating. And um, so if uh, um, you grew up in the church, you're kind of one up on everyone else when it comes to that. <clears throat> and, and if you don't know the story, it's, it's pretty straightforward. But you have Israel fighting its arch nemesis, Philistia, the Philistines. And if you're familiar at all with uh, Israel's geography, you had Israel who occupied the highlands, and then you had the Philistines who occupied the coastal plain, and they often came into conflict over a number of things. Um, sometimes it had to do with... Um, uh, raiding and crops and that sort of thing. Other times it was border disputes. And anyway, so no love loss between these two, um, these two nations, groups of people. And so the story goes, um, it's in First Samuel chapter 17, by the way. Uh, we're going to be there. Uh, you may want to um, follow along with this. But I wanted to try to do kind of a brief summary. But essentially you have um, uh, Philistia and Israel, and they're in this particular valley, valley, and they're each occupying hills on either side of this valley, and the valley is going to be the battlefield. Okay? And, you know, we've, we've had conflicts before, but now the lines are drawn, and we have a major conflict that's brewing. And so all of a sudden, this just l very large man comes out of the ranks of Philistia, and he begins to taunt, and he begins to challenge uh, Israel, and he's saying essentially to them, come on out and fight me. 
let's just settle this. We don't have to have all this bloodshed. I'm, I'm the champion. You send out your champion. We're going to duke it out, and whoever wins is going to win the battle. Okay? So trial by, by ch- uh, champion. Actually, the term here is ish. Uh, let's see if I can rem- remember how to pronounce this correctly. Benayim. Ish benayim is the term for champion that we read in the Bible. And it means the man between two. Does that make sense? So essentially you've got two armies and one man comes out from, from one and he's between the two armies and another man comes out. So Ish Ben-Aim, man between the two. Very common actually in, in the ancient world. You know, why destroy good manpower when you can just have, you know, major, you know, one combatant duke it out with another. Now, the other thing that the text tells us is that Goliath is big and tall. He's shopping at that particular part of the department store, okay? He's a big guy. Now, for the record, the text never calls him a giant, okay? doesn't actually refer to him as a giant. But there's some estimates here because it, it talks about how many cubits and spans he is tall. And unfortunately, there's no standard measure of cubits or spans in the, in the Old Testament. And so the the, uh, the estimate here is he's somewhere between seven and nine feet tall. Needless to say, he's playing for the NBA, okay? I mean, he is a tall, tall individual. And, and the other little detail that we get is that he's also armed and armored to the teeth. And the, the size of his spear and his sword and his armor and the weight of it means that he's also quite strong. Has to be. If you're going to heft a 15-pound spearhead, I mean, you've got to have some, you got to have some muscle to be able to do that. So he's big and strong, but he's never called a giant. Now, also, you need to understand something else, is that <clears throat> over um, a course of, of archaeology and anthropology, we know that human beings were actually smaller then than they are now. And, and so... Whatever the measure of Goliath was, he was tall and strong for that particular time frame. So while the Bible doesn't call him a giant, we would still call him offensive tackle, right? He's just a large, strong individual. The other thing that we know from other um, places within the Old Testament is that Philistia uh, is technologically superior because they have um, metal for their weapons and their armor. And there's, there's a, a, even a couple of references within the text that said that Israel didn't have uh, a whole lot of spears and swords made out of metal, and they would often have to go to Philistia to purchase farm implements or to get them sharpened. So we have not only a technical superiority, technological superiority, but also an economic superiority because Israel had to go to their arch nemesis in order to get some basic equipment to fund their own economy. So you've you've got some things that are going on here, and now you have this just massive bear of a man come out, and he's taunting the armies of Israel. And in contrast, on the other side, we have David, who is a shepherd. And he's not a boy, by the way, but he is considered youthful. And he meets Goliath with a staff, 
uh, a sling, some stones, and a whole lot of moxie. He's got a whole lot of that. And they face off, and David wins with, inf- with an inferior sling and then decapitates Goliath with his own sword. Pretty much the whole story. And I remember as a kid when we used to watch the flannel graph, I never understood how come they didn't have a flannel graph of David cutting off his head. I don't, didn't understand that. That's the part we were all waiting for if you were a boy. It's like, come on, get to the good part, whatever that is. But anyway, it's a great story, and obviously it, it applies to a lot of business uh, um, types of, of scenarios, and it's inspiring, and, and it even you know, has a cartoon with Junior Asparagus playing the, the boy David, and, and you know, because VeggieTales, they don't have any arms, he actually puts the sling on top of the little point in his head and was moving his head around like this, and... You know, <laughs> but is it really a story about an underdog? Is that really what this is about? That's my question, because there's kind of this standard sort of interpretation of the story that's been out there for a long time. And, and you know, if you know me, I kind of like to look under the hood and see what's really happening. And and maybe a closer look at some of the details might re- reveal some, I don't know, maybe some different ideas or different themes. And, and what I'd really like to do is get beyond flannel graphs and veggie tales and really see what the text has to say about this story. And so let's, let's go into the scriptures. First uh, Samuel chapter 17 uh, if you have a Bible or Bible app, you might want to jump there. <clears throat> and I just want to point out a couple of things. I'm not going to read the whole story. That's why I summarized it. But there are some details within the text that I think are worth um, pulling out <clears throat> and examining a little bit. And, and we'll talk about them. And so I'm going to pull out a couple of these features and then make some comments as, as we go. So the first um, part here that I, I want you to take a look at in... Um, 17 is, I want to talk about Goliath a little bit more. So here we go. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. Again, we have no real notion of what a cubit was. There's some estimates, so somewhere between seven and nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Okay, so in combat, um, if you had uh, either officers or if you had um, people who were champions, they would often have armor bearers of some type. Because, you know, in the course of of battle, you may not know exactly what you need. So you've, you know, nowadays we get a kit bag. Right? And you get stuff in your kit bag that you, you know, carry into, into combat with you. Well, here you had an armor bearer. And so here we have somebody called a shield bearer. And isn't it interesting that we don't mention the shield at all, but he's got a shield bearer. But I want you to notice that, that his shield bearer went ahead of him. And I think that's unusual. I think it's unusual that the shield bearer would be in front. Because typically, if you are a champion, you want the glory to be your own, and so there'd be nobody in front of you. Shield bearer would be behind you, much like on the golf course and you got a caddy. 
This would be like the caddy going in front of the golfer on the PGA tournament. Nobody wants to see the caddy. They want to see Tiger, or they want to see Chi-Chi, or they want to see whoever it is that they've come to see. So here you have this odd little detail in the text. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Now, lest you think that I'm just you know, picking at you know, little tiny things here, I also want you to notice later on in verse 41, we see this. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy or a youth, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He's a good-looking brother, and he didn't like that. He didn't like that at all. This term here where he looked David over and saw, the, it's, it's not quite an idiom, but the idea that's conveyed here is that he uh, carefully inspected him. Now, you can't do a careful inspection from a distance. So, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. Odd. Why would that be? Why would the shield bearer be in front of him if they're getting ready to mix it up? It's very strange. So recently, uh, I guess within the last couple of years, um, an author, his name is Malcolm Gladwell, uh, he's been on the staff of the New Yorker for, I don't know, a long um, time, has written a number of books, and uh, is known for his research. Um, Gladwell has written extensively about the David and Goliath narrative, and one of the things that um, he poses in his writing um, is that Goliath suffered very likely from uh, acromegaly. Acromegaly. Yeah, I had to look it up. I wasn't sure what that was either. But essentially, it is a dysfunction or a condition of the pituitary gland. And what it does is that that pituitary gland releases uh, large amounts of growth hormone. So people who have acromegaly are often quite large and quite strong because that hormone has affected them, okay? But one of the side symptoms of this is it also creates blindness or nearsightedness. Isn't that interesting? So no wonder Goliath had to be led to the battlefront because he didn't have eyeglasses. They didn't exist then. And furthermore, he had to move closer to his opponent to inspect him, to look him over. And then he saw that he was something he didn't like. And so what we have here is a very different story of this supposed giant. Does this make sense? Acromegaly, very likely the cause of this. Abnormal growth, but also short-sightedness or blindness. And so you have this idea conveyed that the shield bearer is actually leading him out onto the battlefield because he can't pick his own way there. Very interesting. And the thing that always struck me about this is like, okay, if you're in the middle of a battle with someone and they've got a sling, when you're using the sling, we're going to see this in a minute, when you're using a sling, <clears throat> there's a wind-up to that. And if you're, if you're in the midst of one-on-one -on -one combat, you don't have anything else, why didn't you just duck? Maybe 
because he never saw the stone coming. Does that make sense? So there's some details here in the story that just kind of make you go, hmm, I wonder what's really happening here. So when you have somebody like Goliath, he did just fine when it was toe-to-toe slugfest. He's going to do great under those kinds of circumstances. So Goliath was, by all accounts, very big, very strong, but he was not invulnerable. He was not this kind of juggernaut sort of individual that we we tend to think of um, when when we think about that particular story. So let's leave Goliath alone and let's talk a moment about David. This young shepherd is supplying his brothers at the front. Uh, His father sends food to his brothers so that they have provision that they can eat. Because remember, at the time, Israel doesn't have a standing army. The king would call an army together, and so the various families and tribes would have to supply their troops, their contribution uh, to to the uh, war effort, as the case may be. And so he hears Goliath's challenge. Notice this, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Whoa, 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 wait a second. Whose armies? Saul's? God's. Remember when we talked about being a man after God's own heart? How it really means loyalty? Here you go. This wasn't Saul's army. This was God's army. David saw Israel in the correct light. That while Saul was the earthly king, the ultimate leader of Israel was God himself. So whose army? Yeah, this is loyalty. Now eventually David is sent to King Saul and he wants to fight Goliath. And he explains why. Here it is. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. There it is again. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Interesting, right? He's got... Uh, a certain amount of, of confidence, but who was he rescued by? By his own skill? By his own courage or confidence? No. By the Lord. Again, we see this notion of loyalty. But for David, it's all the same. It's all about God. This lion, this bear, this Philistine, doesn't matter. It's all the same to him. More about this later. But first, we need to talk about the weapon. We need to talk about the sling a little bit. So I found this picture online. Uh, This is a modern adaptation, but you can kind of see, you know, the length of this cord and kind of the size and, and how this might be deployed on a battlefield. So Philistia had technological advantage. They had metal. We know that Israel had very few swords among them. 
and that they acquired any metal tools they, they had from the Philistines. So the sling is not made of metal, but rather cloth and cord, and it was devastating in the hands of a, of a practitioner, somebody who's actually uh, skilled in this. Very useful for shepherds, by the way. Uh, you can kill predators at a distance. But notice what David does here. Here's verse 40. Then he, David, took his staff in his hand, because remember, he struck the lion, he struck the bear. He chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in hand, his hand, approached the Philistine. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled over the fact that he chose five stones, okay? There's some reference that Goliath had like five brothers or some such thing, or four brothers or five kids in the family. And if they were all giants, man, can you imagine that grocery bill? I can't, so I'm not sure. Look, I I don't think it, personally, I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think David was just practical. Because if he misses once, uh, he's going to need another one. And Goliath eventually is going to close that distance. Whether he's short, short-sighted or not, um, David's just being prepared. Because there's this old axiom uh, in the army, one is none and two is one, right? Yeah, that's what happens. You have multiples of, of the things that you might need in a combat situation because things go wrong. They just do. So David picks out five smooth stones. Now, please understand, these are not pebbles either. This is really an important feature. And they're smooth because smooth things fly better. I mean, I'm sure that he could probably chuck a, a, a rugged stone, but if that thing is made out of cloth in any way, there's a good chance that it would stick. So smooth is better. Does this make sense? So he's picking out smooth stones. Now, in archaeology, um, we know <clears throat> that some of these, uh, this ammunition was stockpiled. And you would find um, stones made for slings as small as olives, but as large as a pound or two. Can you imagine that? So, when we think about David as a shepherd boy, you know, slinging this sling, I'm sorry, but he would have had to have a certain amount of strength on his own to be able to hurl that thing. I mean, you saw the guy in the picture. I mean, he was not a small dude. You got to have some strength in order to to actually, you know, send that thing off, so a pound or more. There's some estimates that, depending on the size of the stone, is that that sling had the same stopping power as a 45 caliber bullet which anyone will tell you is a lot of stopping power. And so here we have this smaller opponent wielding a very deadly but very primitive kind of weapon. So he had to be quite strong to wield this with some accuracy. And remember, we found out that David was ruddy. He's not some scrawny little kid. He's been out in the field. And he knew how to use a sling. I mean, come on, what else are you going to do when you're out with the sheep? You're going to (laughs) practice. You know, you're going to set targets up and you're going to, you know, because the sheep are going to do nothing but eat. And, you know, if there's no predators around, got nothing else to do. David, you know, wrote lyrics to songs and he probably practiced with his, that's what I'm guessing. So keep all that in mind. But we have, we have Goliath, we have David, we have the sling, and I want to offer just a couple of thoughts on this story. Here's the first one. 
sometimes, maybe even often, the obstacle or challenge really isn't as scary as we think it is. Have you ever had one of those sets of circumstances where you had a certain amount of anxiety, a certain amount of fear, but then you got through it, and at the end you're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. Yeah? You know, make no mistake, Goliath was large, he was experienced, and he was very, very dangerous, but he was not invulnerable. The condition that gave him size and strength also kept him nearsighted. And so when you're facing your challenges, the first thing that, that you ought to do is to ask yourself, ask yourself, or, or rather, ask God to show you what you might be missing. Does that make sense? That maybe when you're, when you're looking and you're staring down whatever it is that's bothering you, you can say, okay, Lord, Things are not always as they seem. What am I missing here? What's going on behind the scenes? What's going on that I, I can't necessarily see, but you can? Ask him, see what he says. Here's the other thought. <clears throat> the people of God ought to be innovative. I believe that with all my heart. What's the first recorded act of God? In the beginning, God what? Created. And so, I don't think that human beings are any more like God than when they are actually in the process of creating, building, and making things. It's always easier to destroy. It's a lot harder to create, but the point is, is that when we are engaged in that activity, we are, we are mirroring God. We are made in his image. We bear the imprint of the divine. So when we are actually actively engaged in the making or creating process, we're being like him. And so to me, that the people of God ought to be innovative. I mean, David changed the rules of one-on-one champion-based combat. And he didn't make it about strength. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this since I've been reading this story because I've been thinking about this innovation piece of it. And I think that one of the, the parts of that, one of the components of that is that clarity is wisdom. Now think this through with me a little bit. <clears throat> because here we have um, a, a young man who has, uh, he's got some energy to spare. And he's been spending a lot of time with the sheep. Here's something um, about uh, about the armies of Israel being taunted by this Philistine, this uncircumcised. I mean, it just bothers him. And also remember, this is after he was anointed to be the next king of Israel and the Spirit of God was resting on him. Don't forget that. But here we have um, this idea of champion-based combat, toe-to-toe slugfest, the strongest one wins. How many times do you get caught up in your own sets of experience where you're just trading blows with someone else? I just want to hurt you. Maybe you'll shut up if I hurt you enough. And that's what we get wrapped up in. David didn't have that. David was very clear that he wasn't going to make this about strength. This was about removing the one who was defying God. He's clear about it. 
So he didn't have to get into a slugfest. He just picked up what he knew, and he applied it well. Sling in a stone. Something that he had been practicing with, obviously. The point that we're trying to get here is that, yes, he was innovative, but he was also very clear in what his purpose was. He didn't have to prove that he, who was much smaller, was actually stronger than Goliath. He just had to keep his mind on the purpose at hand, which is to win in this particular case. Here's a fourth observation. David approached all of this with a great deal of confidence. He remembered the lion and the bear, and he attributed it to God and had faith. There's a, there's a passage in Revelation chapter 19 that's been coming up quite a bit in some conversations and in my journaling, actually. And it says this, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, what does that mean? Well, testimony is when you tell a story, right? So when we, when we talk about the things that Jesus has done, it is actually carries the spirit of prophecy. Why? Because if God did that for you, then he might do it for me. If God has done it once in the past, that means that he can do it again. This is the whole reason why God said to Israel over and over again, remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of slavery, up out of the land of Egypt. Wanted them to remember that the things that he's done in the past prophesy what he will do in the future. Testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So David gets in front of Saul and he says, oh yeah, lion, bear, mm-hmm. This is going to be just like that. The testimony of the things that God has done is a spirit of prophecy. David, I think, understood that. And this is why I think we must learn how to tell stories of God's goodness. I need you to tell me those stories. You need to hear that from each other. You need to know that God is at work because there are going to be moments where you're not going to feel him. Oh, and I hate that. I hate when that happens. And so do you, and we get all depressed and down, and that's why we need somebody to come along and say, hey, by the way, this is what the Lord's done for me this week. And this is one of the reasons why we ask the question when we're in small group settings. Hey, where do you see God working? I need to know where God is working, because if God is working in your life, then there's a good chance he's going to be working in my life too. And I need that. I need that encouragement. We need that from each other. It builds our faith. It builds the faith of the people who hear. If God did that for them, then certainly God can help me with whatever it is that I'm facing. Spirit of prophecy is contained within the testimony of the works of God. I heard something today, just this morning, um, that really struck me. I don't know why this is, but it seems to happen very often. Um, you know, I'm working on um, a message or, or, or something, and, and kind of at the last minute, the Lord speaks. I don't know why he waits. Maybe because he's got my attention. I'm not sure. <clears throat> and, uh, but anyway, um, 
I heard this from another pastor, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have it exactly, but you'll get the gist. And this pastor made the comment, he said, if we could turn the world around, if we could turn the country around, or if we could turn our communities around through teaching, we would have done it by now. I mean, if you think about it, in this moment in history, we have some of the greatest Bible scholars and greatest Bible teachers the world has ever known. Hands down, period. What's available to the average churchgoer on the internet alone exceeds what some of the greatest libraries in Europe had during the course of history. The sum total of almost all human knowledge is available to you in the palm of your hand, quite literally, in the form of a phone. Look, if we could change the world by teaching alone, we, we, we would have done that by now. We are in an unprecedented moment where information is available and talented communicators who have access to mass communication. There's no reason why if we were going to turn things around by teaching alone, why, why it wouldn't have happened yet. That really stuck me hard. Because I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, well, you know, I, I, and hopefully I still have something to teach. Hopefully I still have the chops in order to do this, but at the end of the day, the amount of teaching that I do isn't what's going to change the world. And if we want to see God move, church, if we want to see that, if we want to tell new epic stories like David and Goliath, then all of us have to risk something. We can't just sit here and listen. We actually have to go and apply this stuff. You know, I mean, we can read our Bibles, which is a great thing because that's just like slinging that stone, doing the practice, doing the practice. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a moment where you've got to spend some time listening and responding to God daily, not just what you hear and feel good about yourself on Sunday. Don't get me wrong, I love that the fact that you're here and that you feel good enough to come back every single week because, you know, the music is great and hopefully teaching teaches you something and you see people that you love and they care about you and all that and I think that's all great. But if we really want to change the world, if we want to see things happen, see God move and, and lives changed and have epic stories to tell, then you know what? You got to get on the field. You got to do something with it. You got to spend time listening and then responding to what God is telling you. I wish that I could change the world with teaching. But teaching means that I gain something and I go out and do something with it. I don't know what that is for you. I'll give you ideas if you want. But ultimately, I'm not God. I know that's hard to believe but I'm not. I don't know what the right thing is for you, but I do know that the Holy Spirit, who is active in your life, does have some ideas, and I want you to access that more than anything else. And if I can help you, and I can encourage you to spend time in the presence of God, have you heard me say that before? Yeah, 
a lot, if I can encourage you to do that, then I believe that his power follows his presence. And if you are listening and responding, you know, one of the things that I try to do every Sunday morning, and I, I, I just try to say to God, I want to say yes to you today. And sometimes he, he does weird things and gives me, you know, thoughts that we ought to pray for people's ears or their headaches or what, I don't know. It, I just want to say yes to him. Or if I'm in a coffee shop, I want to say yes to him. Lord, you know, is there somebody that I need to talk to? I want to, I want to say yes to you today. It starts with that kind of willingness, but good luck if you're not spending time in his presence. One follows the other. And the question, I think, for all of us, and this is that idea of clarity, that clarity of purpose, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want to be a part of? What do you want to see God do? How do you want to engage with him? And are you willing to put the chops in in order to hear from him? I can't answer that for you. You gotta answer that one for yourself. Now I am happy to pray with you about that. Love that. But please understand, that's gonna be a dangerous prayer. But if you really wanna see God move and you wanna see epic stories, This is the only way. Let's pray. Jesus, you're so good to us. And we are capable of more than I think what we've settled for. Just as a people, and I'm not not saying this about this church in particular. I know that you're very active here. But I just think as a people, God, I think we are definitely capable of more. And so my prayer is that every person who's gathered here would listen for your voice and choose to say yes to whatever it is that they're hearing from you. And that we would be a people who risked things, not recklessly, but in the sense that we believe you're active and we want to be a part of the things that you're doing. And Lord, I pray that whatever people are facing, and I know people are facing stuff today because they tell me, the very thing that made Goliath strong and large also left him exceptionally vulnerable. Lord, help us to see Um, our obstacles for what they really are. That we might see it truthfully and that we might be able to process things elegantly and righteously. And Lord, that your spirit would guide us in those um, those thoughts that we have about moving forward. pray about this all day, Lord, but ultimately, I just pray that you would speak in a way that uh, we would be able to hear you, that the people that call Thrive Church home would also, at the same time, 
have the courage to say yes first. And as we sing now, Lord, your Holy Spirit, we invite you to come to do the work that only that you, you can do. And uh, that you would, uh, would also speak to us in the ways that we would most understand. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.